At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I think that New York is the new model for the new concentration camp, where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves, and the inmates are the guards, and they have this pride in this thing they've built. They've built their own prison, and so they exist in a state of schizophrenia, where they are both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made, or to even see it as a prison. Escape before it's too late. See, actually, for... Two or three years now, Chiquita and I have had this very unpleasant feeling that we really should get out. And we really should feel like Jews in Germany in the late 30s. Get out of here. Of course, the problem is where to go, because it seems quite obvious that the whole world is going in the same direction. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. But when you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Are you listening to me, Neo? I've said these are Gnostic times, a Philip K. Dick world. Let's look at the quarantine situation for an example and a small thought experiment. There you are, one of many souls forced to some degree to stay in a limited space that you've convinced yourself is home. Maybe your, quote, home is not a bad place. You have food and running water. You can watch Netflix, play Animal Crossing, or whack off to Aziland videos. You being told by the rulers of this age you need to stay, quote, home is pretty bearable even as the days and time itself seems to melt together in a soggy blur. Well, what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. And the ways you can connect with others is limited. The dreamlike, synthetic, but oh-so-godlike avenues of social media, video chats, email... And you look up to shadowy silhouettes from windows on other, quote, homes across the street. Perhaps doing the same. A blur. Time is a soggy blur. It's not so bad. It's safe. It's what you were told to do. We are the walking dead. You know there is danger out there. An omnipresent and invisible danger. A sickness you must avoid for your own good and the good of others. 
the good of the system. The caretakers of reality have provided stone tablets to ensure your well-being. Out of the way of the threat, even as information from your synthetic communication makes little sense sometimes. Contradictory, even. Do the shadows from the windows agree? What are they thinking? You ever feel like nothing good was ever going to happen to you? Yeah, and nothing did. So what? I'm alive. I'm surviving. That's it. I don't want to just survive. Yet you know there is something more out there. That you are more than the limitations of your, quote, home. You hear a call beyond the rooftops and electric lines. An echo from a distant tide. A memory of a more authentic existence that comes from both your heart and beyond your senses. You know where you belong, and in a sense it's nowhere. But that means it's everywhere. We're like the dreamer. Dreams, and then lives inside the dream. So you make your move. You escape. You're outside in an expanding reality, caressed by sunlight and a sensual breeze. Oh, everything seems so new and a bit scary. Even more alarming, there are guardians out there, uniformed angels. You might have to present magical passwords in the form of casual lies. Perhaps a permission spell scroll you summon from your printer. The more you tighten your grip, Tark, the more star systems will slip through your finger. Shit. There's a Kraken Karen who sees you're not like the others because you won't wear your plastic Greek tragedy mask. But you avoid her and her short, angled, and layered haircut. You are tearing me apart, Lisa! But you still must avoid Sauron-like eyes in the form of drones and street cameras. Avoid passing cars with passengers that could be possessed by Agent Smith at any second. It was a disaster. You don't know who to trust. Who are the pneumatics and who are the servants of the Archons? Nevertheless, you continue through heavens of neighborhoods, breaking through the starry fate of social distancing and executive orders. Feeling more alive than ever, free for once, giggling and ecstatic as you realize your nature is to be a wanderer of the unknown with agency and curiosity, meant to be part of a larger existence, part of the all. Into a species of pure thought, are you with me? Into something that's like well beyond our comprehension, into a universal consciousness, into God who is, by the same principle, that time is. Eh, and maybe you'll just get an ice cream at a secretly open parlor, or sit by a pond and watch goofy geese. But you're there. You're in the moment. 
everywhere. You smile. You are alive. Get busy living. You get busy dying. I hope you enjoy this little allegory that explains the Gnostic myth. Just one of many I've presented here at AM Byte Gnostic Radio. Plato would be proud, and you deserve to be alive. Maybe the quote home, the material world, isn't that bad like the Valentinians and Hermetics believed. Maybe it is that bad as the Sethians contended. But in the end, the material world is not what we, Nosticoi and Psychonauts, are meant to tarry in. We really have no, quote, home anywhere in the grid of the Demiurge. We want the great outdoors of the multiverse and will dare any astral fate lords to experience it, to go beyond, everywhere. It's like God's vagina. Or maybe it doesn't matter. It's all in our heads. As Nagweeb Mafo said, Home is not where you are born. Home is where all your attempts to escape cease. But the Egyptian author also said, Fear does not prevent death. It prevents life. Train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. So welcome those of you who want to embrace life, who want to reach your potential, who want to get out of the fracking house and find that nowhere you've always imagined. I hope I, Miguel Connor, have served you because all of you mean the world to me. I mean it. You can do so many wonders, I just know it. I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things. And I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? In this eternal now, our astral guest will provide his own powerful allegory from his book, Interviewing Jesus. We are honored to have at the Virtual Alexandria the author of this new and fascinating work, David Collis. Beyond an engaging exercise in dialoguing with your daemon or higher self, or writing your own gospel as I say, David distills the mystic side of Christ and provides some intriguing Jesus theories I've never heard before. Very compelling, and even addresses the mythicist theory, as you will see in our interview. David is truly a bright heart and kind soul, as you will also see. Have you found Jesus yet, Don? I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, so. <laughs> yes. These are Gnostic times and a Philip K. Dick world. But it's also the age of Hermes, the lord of tricks and transitions, but also the king of wisdom and reason, the patron of thieves and travelers, 
those like us in the dark alleys of society. Say goodbye to Mithras. Embrace the chaos and innovation of Mercury, the psychopomp and leader of those who wander and are not lost, who never cared about being in a, quote, home. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is that it? Those of us who embrace this age of Hermes will forgo our programming. Unlike the rest, who will embrace this God's shadow side of narcissism and antisocial cruelty? We don't need to embrace him here because we were already allied to him as we wanted to never stay home and have those wings in our heels to visit the ponds with goofy geese or perhaps have a little ice cream. I'm glad you're here with me, running with those searching for the truth and avoiding those who have found it. Welcome to the Age of Hermes. If it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. We need these Gnostic truths more than ever. Trust me, what's coming the rest of 2020 is far more oppressive. But here we are at the end of the world with the god in the gutter and the despised philosopher's stone buried in the mud with our allegories and our Mercury. As the ending of Grant Morrison's The Invisibles goes, we made gods and jailers because we felt small and ashamed and alone. We let them try us and judge us and, like sheep to slaughter, we allowed ourselves to be sentenced. See, our sentence is up. Let us out of this cosmic quarantine with our interview with David Collis on his book, Interviewing Jesus. It's just one more way of reducing your liberty and reminding you that they can fuck with you anytime they want, as long as you put up with it. As long as you put up with it. Which means, of course, any time they want. Because that's what Americans do now. They're always willing to trade away a little of their freedom in exchange for the feeling, the illusion of security. What we have now is a completely neurotic population obsessed with security and safety and crime and drugs and cleanliness and hygiene and germs. There's another thing. Germs. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by David Collis to discuss his book, Interviewing Jesus, the Man. David, welcome to the show, and how are you doing? Hello, Miguel. Thank you for having me on your show, and I'm uh, very excited about this interview. 
So are we. As uh, we were talking before, the the interview before the interview, the book was uh, very inspirational. It was touching at times. It was unique. But you bring a lot of insights that I haven't seen in other books. And uh, as I mentioned, I've read hundreds of different Jesus theory books from believers, from atheists, from non-Christians. And it, it's great to see such a refreshing take on Jesus and theology and uncovering some new and fascinating theory so we will definitely get all into that we'll get our hands dirty but first we must also welcome the moon dog himself vance sachi how you doing vance oh i'm fine tonight miguel and looking forward to hearing about jesus and a new viewpoint all right well david why don't we start with you uh as you talk about in your book your journey was informed by a mystical experience. So tell us about David and how he became the David that he is today. Okay. Well, uh, when I was 19 years old, I had what is referred to as an existential crisis. I was totally concerned about who I was, where I was supposed to go, what I was supposed to do, and who was God. And that crisis led me into... Um, kind of the discovery of religion from a completely new perspective, and that has stayed with me uh, ever since. So that was, you know, a long time ago. Uh, at the time, my my hair was not gray, and it was a <laughs> lot longer than it is now. And now I have shorter hair, and I have a gray beard. So it was a long time ago. And then I had another profound experience, um, just just as profound as the first one. And of course, that's like. Uh, I would refer to that uh, in the Catholic perspective as the dark night of the soul when you question everything. You question the world, you question God, you question your relationship um, to yourself, who you are. Everything is in, in flux and everything is turned upside down. And that was my experience at 19. Uh, I had another profound experience two years later in which I had visions of Jesus. And uh, one of the visions, and it was more like a visionary type of experience, because it was it was so real. It lasted um, seven minutes, seven to eight minutes, and uh, I Jesus actually walked with me for several blocks. And so after um, that happened, there was a time in which I walked I walked back that experience and timed it, and it turned out to be about that almost eight minutes. So it was like he was like walking with me. He was in the flesh, so to speak. I knew he was there. Uh, we didn't say much of anything except we were communicating telepathically in which we were just enjoying each other's company. Well, that experience pushed me uh, like a rocket ship into Christianity. And from there, I just became a student of the religion. Wow, that's wonderful. And uh, what were some of the figures that influenced you as you began to take the sort of alternative Christianity path? Well, at first it wasn't too alternative. It tended to be more on the Pentecostal point of view because it was all this spiritual awakening. And so there was this exuberance of the baptism that I experienced, this kind of new life I experienced. I felt like I was, you know, being guided and, and directed by the Holy Spirit. And so I got myself um, involved with a couple of groups, and I spent a lot of time uh, researching and reading, one, the Old Testament, two, the New Testament, and then a lot of Protestant 
theological perspective. So I was interested in Karl Barth and uh, C.S. Lewis and, and the likes. And then um, one day, uh, I, I, I have to kind of back up a little bit. I have, um, people would call me, and it's taken a while for me to understand this, but there's a very mystical side to me. And the, 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 the term that came up um, several years ago was empath. So I have this tendency to have, um, to feel with my heart, to feel with a lot of things. At the same time, I have these types of mystical experiences, and they've been with me um, since I've been a youth. And I never really appreciated them, and I never really um, entertained it or really kind of gave it much voice. But this this experience sure did. So anyway, one uh, one day I was on uh, my kitchen, or excuse me, on my front porch, and um, I was just kind of contemplating my next move and what to do. And I was in my early twenties, and a voice said to me to read Thomas Merton. So I had no idea who Thomas Merton was. I had never heard of Thomas Merton, and here I was being told by some voice that was like inside of my head to read Thomas Merton, which I did, and uh, the first book that I got was um, The Seven-Story Mountain, I think that was the name of it. It was his biography of how he became a monk, and uh, from that, that kind of propelled me into experiencing and reading and researching Christianity from a mystical point of view and kind of from a traditional Catholic point of view and from the mystical Christian point of view. And that really, I found uh, my voice. I found um, a path that I knew that seemed to coincide with the one that I was already walking. Yeah, and you say you were had a predisposition for mystical experience, but you didn't like them. But I think sometimes you talk to people, and it's nice to have these experiences because, A, you know that there is something beyond this fleshy life. There's a whole spirit world out there, and you can have one experience or two and your ego starts making you forget it or getting more seduced into the material world. So at least uh, it must be in a way nice. And some people would envy you that, you know, you can see beyond the veil and know that there's a lot, that it's a busy universe out there. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to fear death. I mean, in a way you don't have to, because you know, the journey is much longer than your life. <laughs> Well, you know, we're dealing with the nature of eternity. And so we just happen to be temporal beings in an eternal space and an internal time. So, I mean, once you understand that, then a lot of the fear goes away. And of course, when you look at Buddhism, you know, understanding your mortality is the start of being free so that you can experience more than just yourself. Well said indeed. And also, you write that uh, the Gospel of Thomas and maybe the essence of the Sufi wisdom tradition really influence you. How do these works influence you? They're not mutually exclusive by any thought of the imagination. As some have said, uh, Sufi is just Islamic Gnosticism and the Gospel of Thomas is, of course, heavily influenced by Gnostic thought. Exactly. And so what we're looking at are two different mystic traditions. And both of them uh, deal with experience. And so the question is, is how do we re-experience ourselves and we re-experience the divine? And how does the wisdom of each of these traditions move us closer in that direction? And of course, 
um, Sufism, as you mentioned, is the Islamic version of mysticism, and um, Gnosticism is one branch of the Christian mystics. So when I, I so now we have to fast forward. So again, I'm having all these mystical experiences, and there's a lot of that that happened between uh, what I just mentioned and the, the, now the one that I'm going to refer to now. But um, back in 2000. In January of 2012, I was sitting um, at a friend's house right after the new year, and I was—I um, had opened up the Gospel of Thomas, and I was reading the sayings. And I had been reading the sayings, um, you know, for months before, and I thought, boy, I just do not understand one word from what these guys are saying. I mean, you can understand a little here, a little there, but really there was no kind of deep insight into the into the material. And the same kind of was uh, could be said for my interest in the Sufis as well, is that there's this mystical side to um, the Sufis, and I just couldn't fully grasp their intention of what they understood about the divine. And so here I have this experience, and the, the experience uh, was one of these that I wasn't really looking for, and it wasn't anything that I was fully appreciative of and it wasn't anything that I kind of was asking for either and yet it happened to me and um, in an instant it was as if the knowledge of the mystic traditions and the religious traditions of the world just downloaded into me and I got to glimpse into what we would refer to as like eternity so it was from there that I just went, oh, my God, this is so profound. I can see really clearly into all this material. And lo and behold, what was very mysterious in the Gospel of Thomas now became very clear. And then also a little bit on the Sufi side with Rumi and 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 the like, I got to see that as well. So, um, yeah, the, the idea of the awakening of the self to understand and, and to understand the self coincided with the idea that the more you understood about yourself and the more you can see about yourself, you're tied directly into the divine. And here I was having this incredibly divine experience. And um, that got me really excited to understand Christianity from uh, a a perspective that I hadn't seen before. And so we have to, I felt that it was important to understand Jesus as one, as a mystic and two, as one who was enlightened and that the experience had to be very similar to the one that I, that I could, uh, or the one that I had and that the father and his understanding of the father, I think had a lot to do with mystical experiences. Well said. And so what led you to write interviewing Jesus? Well, the first thing that happened um, once I had this experience with the Gospel of Thomas is that I was uh, I contacted the Unity Church here in Tucson and asked if I can um, uh, give a four-part lecture series, of which I was granted. And so I spent um, quite a bit of time researching and, you know, developing these, you know, uh, hour-and-a-half presentations. And... Once I was done with that, I had a lot of positive feedback from the people that, that came. It wasn't like there was a huge audience, but I had, you know, about 10 to 15 people, uh, once a week that came and listened to me. And, um, from that, I developed this idea and I tried to understand what 
motivated the Thomas community. And in it, I started to realize that there's a relationship between the type of person that is receiving this information and the the group that is um, kind of embodies this knowledge. So I saw this direct relationship between these two parts. Um, It's a little bit, the way that I kind of was able to explain this to some friends is just imagine uh, learning math and you now know or you now need calculus as part of the next step in your math evolution. Well, the Gnostics were kind of this, they kind of had calculus, you know, this very deep philosophical understanding that would be equivalent to calculus. So that told me that the group had to be aligned with this concept and they had to be up and ready for this concept. So once I started to understand this relationship between the material and the individual, I then started to look at Jesus in a very similar light. So what kind of community would be listening to Jesus? What would Jesus have to offer? And what did he offer? And um, so when I started to look at this relationship from that perspective, I started uh, started to think about Christianity in a new light. And from there, I started to explore a couple of things about Jesus that I wanted to I wanted to see in a new light. And at the time I wasn't fully aware that this is what I was doing, but you know, I think I just followed my intuition. So um I had spent some time with a Jungian analyst and I uh was involved with um analyzing my dreams and I spent 3 years with this woman. And I started to realize with Jesus that there was a um, an element which I would say, um, when it kind of when it comes to uh, psychology, that what one says and what one does reveals a lot about that person. So I thought I need to do two things. One, I really need to understand the historical context of Jesus, and two. I'm going to go ahead and do what the um, what the Gospel of Thomas did, and that is I'm going to isolate Jesus's sayings and put a lot of his sayings into one giant opus. Um, so I uh, cataloged all of his sayings I, uh, and brought all these sayings into one big file, and it turned out to be 25 pages. And from there, I started to break that down into subject and theme, and then I started to analyze the person, and I'm asking myself, what kind of person would say this? What kind of experiences would this person need to have to be able to speak in in these terms? And then I got so far to ask myself, well, where are these sayings being inspired from? Are we supposed to believe that Jesus is inspired and that everything that came out of his mouth was ultimately, you know, God, the, the the Jewish God, or is there some other inspirations that Jesus is referring to and is inspired by? And so I looked at that and I started to realize with all of his sayings that there are several very strong 
connections that Jesus had to other traditions outside of Judaism. So I saw elements of Hinduism. I saw elements of Buddhism. I saw elements of Taoism. And I saw uh, uh, elements of Confucianism. And then I saw elements of of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And um, then I started to see Greek Platonic thought. And I thought, well, why, why is all of this material in here? Where did Jesus get all of this, this, these insights? Not the internet. He didn't Google them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so there had to have been some mechanism, some place, some guru, some teacher for Jesus to be inspired by. I, you know, none of this material is spontaneous. You just don't live a life you know, doing certain things and it all comes down. There was an element that had to have occurred and Jesus had to embrace for all of this information to come to him. So with that, I kind of reverse engineered his life. It was a little bit like trying to, you know, I, I played a lot of sports when I was younger and I, I looked at this and I said, Jesus is the MVP of the baseball league, the you know, the major leagues. <laughs> yeah. And so if he's the MVP, what steps would have what steps did he take to get to to get into that position? And so with that from there I just started to reverse engineer his life and part of the template that I used was Joseph Campbell's The Hero uh, with a thousand faces in which the the individual in this case Jesus is going on an odyssey and a quest and that he, that there are certain milestones that he had to have um, uh, had to engage and had to encounter and so that's how I started to shape the um, the story wonderful yeah I like you were talking about the level of education to understand some of this uh, content uh, made me think of Elaine Pagels, and she famously said, Christianity is uh, kindergarten, Gnosticism is grad school, because it That's pulls right. from so many of the, you know, what the, the elite and the educated and the mystic were talking about at the universities and the, you know, and the, and the temples, stuff that 99% of the people wouldn't be able to grasp. That's correct. And, uh, you know, kind of as a side note, we're going to start seeing in the second century a very strong movement within the church to have what was referred to as a front door or a front room experience. And then there is the back room experience. So the front room experience, and this is a two tiered, now this is a two tiered system. So the front room experience was just your basic um, uh, Christianity for as many people as possible. It was very easy. You know, there's lots of stories, etc. And then the back, the back room people are the ones who were the, were the more educated and the ones that are more directed and focused in on these deeper truths. And so this is funny. I mean, this is a very important point because this was something that was developing in the second century and it ended up starting to come into, um, fruition in the uh, you know, in the, the the second century as well. Actually, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. This this movement occurred in the second century, and then it started to really kind of uh, gain some momentum. And it wasn't until later, in the last of the second century and in the beginning of the third century, that that the Christian bishops and the the deacons and the elders started to realize that they have a problem on their hand and they needed to deal with it. 
Yeah, you're 100% right, and that's why you had uh, groups like the Valentinians in the second century that were bringing Plato in with uh, Jesus and being very allegorical, metaphorical, and uh, not even the Gospel of Mark says it, doesn't it, David? Uh, to some I speak the parables, and to the others I speak the truth, the mysteries of what I'm trying to say. So That's right. And he had a two-tier system. I'm convinced that there was a two-tier system with him as well. So he's dealing with the, the, um, the basic concept that I started to realize is that there were two parts to, you know, uh, Christianity. There was the heart part and then there was the intellectual part. And so the Gnostics ended up taking a very strong direction with the, with the mind. And, and Christianity as a whole really started, just tried to address the nature of the heart. And so we now have this split between the mind and the heart. That's, kind of the way that I was beginning to understand it. So again, as I go back to what I was saying about the Gospel of Thomas, it's like the Gospel of Thomas was like calculus. So how does somebody prepare themselves to receive calculus? Well, you have to go through, you know, basic math and basic addition and subtraction and then start going through algebra and trig and, you know, eventually you work your way up into calculus. Well, I knew that that's exactly what had to have happened with the Gospel of Thomas, because if you went in as a novice listening to some of the things that, Je that Jesus is supposedly have said in the Gospel of Thomas, you would have just been saying, what? And that's what happened to me before I had this mystical experience. I couldn't understand a word they were talking about. And then, like I said, I had this experience in which my mind kind of opened up. I had an enlightenment, and I got to see all this stuff for what it was. Yeah, wonderful. So you would say, for the audience, Jesus came from a very educated background. That's where he was able to uh, get all this knowledge, which most people couldn't get. Well, okay, let's... um. Let me go back and tell you what I re, uh, had, as I reversed engineered his life, what I believe had to have happened to him. So, um, this is what, this is, I am uh, convinced this is Jesus's backstory. I can't tell you how all of this fits together, but I can tell you these are the types of things that occurred to him before he started his ministry. So I kind of looked at, I broke Jesus's life up into several different parts. And so the first part is, well, we know what the end was, and we know what his ministry was. So there's a period of time in his life in which we can kind of define, because at least it was written about, and we have it in the Gospels. But then there's all this other material that wasn't written about, and there's that big gap between the time he was 12 to the time he started his ministry. And it was that, that period of his life that captivated me, and I wanted to understand what had to be in that life uh, for him to be able to conduct his ministry. So his ministry is the end of whatever occurred to him, but there are other things that had to have occurred to him for him to be able to do that. So um, this is what I came up with, and I believe that this is pretty close to being accurate. Jesus was born into a devoted uh, and pious family, and that family had connections. Uh, Jesus's family was wealthy and they owned some form of estate. And I believe that that estate was, was involved with either agricultural products, uh, some type of merchandise, and that there is some construction or some building part to the family. Um, 
Jesus uh, and his family, particularly his mother, and I believe his father as well, had some strong sense of destiny, that Jesus was destined to do something very special. And that sometime between, you know, the 13 to 17, Jesus left home. So here's the idea that Jesus um, left home, and this idea comes from uh, the prodigal son, that the, the son comes back to the father. Uh, and I felt that that was important for Jesus, that he ended up leaving and going somewhere. Uh, there was, uh, whether he, before or after this leaving of the family, Jesus was involved with some very uh, heavy learning and education. Uh, but definitely when he was on his own and he was off somewhere, most likely in the East, I mean, it's hard to imagine how he can have all these different uh, esoteric understandings of Eastern mysticism without going there. So that made me believe that he went that way uh, and that while he was there, that he studied and he learned and he practiced um, a lot of the spiritual uh, knowledge. Um, with that, I've been able to I identify at least four very, very profound experiences that Jesus had, and these were all before his ministry. Um, one, Jesus had some type of enlightenment experience. In my book, I, I, I knew that Jesus had, I knew Jesus was a mystic, and I knew that Jesus had to have some, some very profound spiritual experiences. And so I had to ask myself, here are all these different components that Jesus is involved in. He has an open mind. He has an open heart. He seems to um, know uh, how to heal people. He was uh, super brave and super courageous. And I felt, you know, he and he overcame the needs of the body. So I've identified five basic components within his this life. And I asked myself, well, how do you do all of that? I know what an enlightenment experience is, so I know that your mind can open, but how do you open up your heart? And how do you have all these other experiences, particularly the type of experiences to overcome the needs of the body? So I kind of identified that Jesus, during his ministry, he experienced what I refer to as, as feats of endurance. And so the first feat of endurance was 40 days out in the desert. Uh, and then the th second one was his ministry and the demands of the ministry. And then the third one was uh, his willingness to sacrifice himself. Um, so anyway, um, so I knew that Jesus had a profound uh, religious experience. And I just believed that maybe he had a near-death experience. Uh, I also know that Jesus was robbed and beaten. I know that they also had some type of uh, sexual experience and that the sexual experience uh, shamed him. Uh, and I also know that there was another element to his experience in which he kind of um, fell deep into the pit of humanity and the grossness of it and kind of the horribleness of it. And, you know, it's the proverbial hell and that he he felt that maybe mankind was wretched and despised. And uh, and he recognized the ugliness of mankind. And then eventually Jesus returned and he came back home of which his family seemed to be, or at least some of them were reluctant to receive him back. So that's the back story that I was able to determine from Jesus's sayings. No, it's uh, incredible insights, which I really loved, I think. Uh, so, so the audience knows well or gets it. 
to crystallize this. Uh, the reverse engineers, for example, when Jesus gives the the parable of the prodigal son, he's actually talking about himself. He got beaten by some. He left the house. He was, you know, young and impetuous, and he got attacked, and got beaten, and had an NDE. That's what you're saying. These parables are actually hints of his past and how he became Jesus. That's correct. So I was looking at a lot of his sayings, particularly his parables, and I'm recognizing an autobiographical nature to these stories. And that the um, the Good Samaritan with a man half beaten and barely alive, I, re- I recognize that Jesus Jesus is the one who was beaten and, and has been left on the side. Now, if that's – I don't know – you know, this is the thing that's kind of fascinating about Jesus is that he was such a master storyteller that he is, he's able to bring in elements into his, into his life and, or into his ministry of which is being inspired by life experiences. Um, so that's kind of where I started to recognize that Jesus is telling me the truth, but it's also the truth of his own life story. And so it was, it was using his own parables and the aphorisms to re, um, to recreate his life based off of what he's telling me. So the number one thing after uh, doing this exercise of putting all of those sayings together is that the number one thing that Jesus spoke about the most was money or treasure. The number one. And I thought, well, why is he telling me this? And then when I broke it down further, I started realizing that there are four different types of personalities that are being discussed here, or different types of people that are being discussed in these sayings. There is a person who knows something about like um, um, a plantation, those those elements, it's kind of like a that's a, a derogatory term today, but you know, at that time people would grow dates or palms, you know, had palm trees, and then they would make, um, you know, oil, olive oil from the, from the trees. And so that was a type of industry that people were involved in. And it sounded to me like Jesus came from a family that had a cash crop. The other thing, the other part to all of Jesus's money sayings was there was this very strong element of the merchant. So there was always one who was looking for opportunities to be able to find ways to get his wares to the people. Um, the third element that was rather, um, uh, you know, it's very like noticeable, but, you know, once you say it, you know, you can see it. But that is one who works with their hands. And I've um, I spent time out on construction sites building things. So I know what it's like to build furniture and cabinets and houses and and other things. And I'm seeing that there is that strong element of working with your hands that Jesus uh, embraced. And then the, the fourth thing that I noticed from his sayings is that there's this strong element of the inheritance. And so all of these have money associated with them. And, um, you know, who gets an inheritance? You know, mostly it's the people that are fairly wealthy have something to give to their children when they die. And so I was wondering how that that applies to Jesus. Uh, the other thing about this whole money issue that also seemed very um, striking to me was the fact that Jesus spoke about um, 
capital gain, taxes, investment, return on investment, um, good um, labor, uh, bad labor, good management, bad management, labor disputes, etc. And I thought, well, how does a spiritual person that's supposed to be so holy have yeah, these true. types of experiences <laughs> that have a lot to do with what we would refer to as like contemporary finance? So then when you read further <laughs> and you find out that, you know, in Luke, uh, Luke 8, um, 2, 3, chapter 8, uh, verse 2 and 3, we, we uh, hear about the list of women of means, the women who are wealthy. And lo and behold, Jesus's mother is one of them. So he, this was confirmation to what is already embedded into Jesus's sayings, that Jesus is a, is, comes from a wealthy family. Jesus is very well educated, and he really knows his stuff. The other thing about Jesus is that his sayings have a tendency to be autobiographical. He's speaking from his own experiences. And he is, and this is what's really important. Jesus is intimately familiar with his concepts. So he's not the type of person who is reading from a book and then regurgitating what he knows or what he has read from a book. He went beyond that. He went directly into his own experiences and used those experiences to inform his ministry and to inform his, his wisdom sayings. And then also Jesus was not a hypocrite. So he's been personified as truth. And so he, what he said and what he did were consistent with each other. So he spoke the, you know, he walked the, he walked the walk and he talked the talk. So he was, there's no disconnect between what he was saying and what he was doing. The two of them were intimate. They were intimately interrelated. Um, Jesus was a learned man. He was a skilled orator and a storyteller. He was extremely observant, and he took what he observed, and he added that into his sayings. And um, he was a man who was capable of doing extraordinary things. And then there were kind of magical things that he did, and he performed miracles. So, you know, how did he learn to be able to do that? And, uh, you know, once you start breaking it down in those terms, the way that I did, I started to see that this is a very, very remarkable individual. And I didn't want to look at the, you know, look at him from a theological point of view that he's the son of God, or he's the redeemer, he's the sacrificial lamb, or he's the second Adam, etc. Those were all archetypes. And I wanted to get beyond the archetype and get beyond the symbolism and get beyond the theology. So I can really look at Jesus for who he was and what he accomplished and how he was inspired and what inspired him. Oh, I love your view in this adventure with Jesus. And for the audience, the book is couched basically as the title. David and uh, Jesus have a conversation, not just in one room, but there is a scene where you guys go to the coffee shop and have a latte. And Jesus, I think in another scene, he gets wet and he has to dress up as what, like a cowboy because you guys were standing in the rain. So it's yeah, a... we were, I had it so that we were walking the labyrinth and we were out in the rain. Yes. These are great scenes and I loved it. So I don't know if it's a side note, but of course in my head, I'm thinking, well, what if they did a movie? And then I was thinking, I wonder who would play Jesus. Have you ever thought of that, David? 
Well, okay, this is very this is a very intriguing point that you bring up. So along the way as I was writing this book, I tried to imagine myself as if I had a movie camera and that I was walking with Jesus on his ministry and I was trying to, you know, put the camera you know, right behind him or right in front of him or just look around and say, hey, what's over there? What's going on over there? What am I hearing? What am I seeing? What am I, you know, who's following me? How big does this trail get, you know, of people that are, you know, following me? At all times, I try to imagine myself uh, being a director or a cinematographer looking at Jesus while he was engaged in his ministry. And so I wanted to bring it down just to that level, because one of the things that happens is when you read the New Testament, you kind of get out into your mind and into your head and you start seeing things from a theological perspective, but you just, it's hard to see the type of things that Jesus was engaged in. And I wanted to engage the reality of his life and his, uh, his life and his society and the his times. So I wanted to put on his robe, put on his sandals, and kind of walk his walk and look through his eyes. And I asked myself, what would I be seeing? What would I be feeling? What would I be hearing? Yes, I thought of that too. And I thought of what actor would play him, although I have no idea. I'm sorry. I know. So I mean do we go Side back to the loop? <laughs> yeah, would it be like, would you go back to uh, the actor Jim Cavella, I think is that his name, that yes. played The Passion of the Christ? Yeah, or Max von Sydow, or God, there's a... Uh, Max Dodge. Yes, yes, great actor. And, uh, I know. What about you, Vince? Have you ever thought somebody who might play Jesus? How about Bob Newhart? <laughs> very dry jesus where did that yeah. come from <laughs> william shatner <laughs> although i could say the uh, william shatner's uh, predecessor um what's his name jeff jeffrey hunter but he all he did play jesus didn't he no you're right there has to be a person that has an element of physicality to him you know this is one of the things that i found very very fascinating you know um uh, Miguel, as you know, Plato, uh, I think his family was um, stonemasons, weren't they? they? You know, he was constantly out like building things with stone. And yet his mind had this incredible ability to kind of go deep, deep, deep into philosophical understanding. And there was an element of Jesus that I saw had a physical side to him and yet he had a very refined spiritual intellectual side about him and a very kind of a diplomatic kind of way and so i thought these are two very interesting impulses to have the physicality to overcome the bodies and to overcome the need of the body and then you know build things with his hands because it says that he was a carpenter and yet at the same time just have all of this depth of wisdom and then uh, the ability to to share that and so there was kind of a refined quality to jesus as opposed to say somebody like um it looked like you know from my perspective uh john the baptist was a little bit more rugged you know he he put on um sackcloth and ate wild uh wild locusts and ate honey and i just thought boy that's just a real aggressive kind of a guy and he got into people's faces you know, all the time. Of course, Jesus did too. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and also that's a that's a trait of the Galilean of the Galilean prophets. 
Yeah, yes, you go with that. Yeah, they had uh, they had their issues. They had their power. You describe it. Yeah, I see Jesus as this perfect blend of a stoic and a sort of a Dionysian. He's very powerful. You even said uh, you your character says that he's an entrepreneur. He's always yes. looking for some, something different, a way to tweak thing or innovate thing, including spirituality. And you talk about a carpenter. Yeah, he's I think twice he's he's called a tecton, which could be a Freeman. Mason, not necessarily a carpenter. So it's right. a, a builder. A right? builder, yeah. A builder. Freemasonry is the builder that was able to build whatever they exactly. felt was necessary. So he's, you know, he's building this new community out of this all this wisdom. So Oh yes. I see it very much there. And you, you said that I'm trying to back up because this obviously in this show we've done many many shows on Mary Magdalene, the Divine Feminine, Sophia, some of the other you know strong women in history or more influential women in history that have been overlooked by the victors that write the history. But so I was of course very touched by how you portrayed Jesus and Mary Magdalene. It makes sense, but you said that. He had a sexual experience, but correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't he and Mary were soulmates from the very beginning. I think it was before he met her. Ah, okay, okay. I thought maybe they grew up together and then they were sweethearts and then they... I think that there's an element of that they knew each other from a very early stage. Yeah, and later on she became his, his soulmate. Right, and then of course... Again, you have to kind of go back. You know, when I was um, thinking about some of this stuff, and as I mentioned earlier, I want to just kind of give throw out another metaphor. You know, so just imagine that you're a sailor and you've always been sailing on a boat that's like 25 feet and your your harbor is, you know, just a small harbor for small boats. And you go out one day, you know, kind of past the horizon line and past your level of, you know, comfort. And lo and behold, out out there in your little 25 foot sailing boat, you come across, you know, the super tanker that's like 1200 feet long and you go, what the hell's that? And you go, (laughs) I know that that ship, of course it's bigger than anything I know, but I know that that ship has to go to a Harbor. So what kind of Harbor can handle that size of a ship? And so you start seeing the relationship between the ship and the harbor and of course the third uh, part of that is the society that has you know has the capacity to manage the 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 scale so if your reference is only a 25 foot boat and all of a sudden you see this giant ship out there you know all of a sudden you're going to be having some type of out of body experience recognizing that your whole life has seen the world only from one perspective and so kind of using that as the metaphor and as a gauge i started to ask myself if jesus is everything that i'm just mentioning you know he's super smart he comes from a wealthy family etc well what kind of person would mary be i mean i can't imagine jesus just you know looking after somebody who's like really you know i'm sure she was probably beautiful but i can't imagine him just saying oh all i want is beauty you know i would imagine he wanted somebody in a kind of in the same um, make and model and kind of thinking as Jesus. So she, if, if that, that's true, then this woman had to have been very powerful. 
and very smart and probably spoke her mind a lot, which would, and if that's the case, really pissed off a lot of the men at that time, (laughs) thinking that women shouldn't be saying the things that they did. And lo and behold, you see just that in the Gospel of Mary and in uh, the Gospel of Thomas, that Mary had a special place in Jesus's heart. And he's told her things that the other men couldn't understand. And they were upset by that. Indeed. So when Jesus left his family to discover himself, as men like to do, he left Mary there. Or was it later on that they had a relationship? When My feeling is, is that he, after he came back home, he rekindled his friendship with her. And you have to ask yourself, uh, one, well, in, in my book, I kind of mentioned that Mary uh, Magdalene is a is a derivative, and there is her name is is derived from the town called Migdal, and Migdal is on is a set as a town on the um, the Sea of Galilee, and they were known for salted fish. And to put that in perspective, salted fish at the time. Uh, in the first century was kind of like the way I tried to understand it was like the equivalent of a pizza. So just imagine everybody wanting pizza. Everybody wanted this salted fish. So if Mary came from a wealthy family and Jesus, you know, comes from a a fairly wealthy family and somehow they knew each other, it doesn't surprise me that her family was involved in some type of merchant or some type of industry that, um, you know, uh, that would, I'm trying to, I'm not saying this right, but anyway, it seemed like it was very consistent with Jesus's understanding of money. So Jesus seems to have this, you know, complete grasp of money. And the question is, is where is he coming up and where's all this understanding of money coming from? And then if you throw in, um, Mary Magdalene, who was also referred to in that line in Luke about women of means, then you have to ask yourself, you know, is she also bringing in a new understanding of money that Jesus is now borrowing? And then you can go even further because one of the women in Jesus's entourage, who was a woman of, of means, was a lady by the name of Joanna. And she was the wife of Cusa, and Cusa was the manage of Herod's household. So you have a direct connection. I mean, think about this, you know, seven degrees of separation. You are one person, you're two people away from the king uh, of Israel with this woman. So this is rather, you have to really stop and think about what this is meaning and what, what was going on. So uh, you know, there's so much that I I was really working through. And uh, I just tried to, as as somebody asked me, this is, well, um, you know, how did you come up with this? And, you know, why did it take so long to write? And it's like, well, look, you know, I had a thousand pieces that I was trying to deal with, and I'm trying to mesh a thousand moving parts into one coherent whole. And that's no easy task. You do a great job in your book, Dave. So, so Jesus goes out again. I go to the prodigal for some reason that speaks to me. And so again, it's the hero's journey. It's Luke going out and being a brat most of the time, but ending up being mature towards Empire Strikes Back. Right. And he comes back. He and Mary become an item, but then he, he's had this NDE and he wants to go 
and spread this message. And Mary, of course, is with them. She's supporting him with the other women. So that brings us to a really fascinating, well, your whole book is fascinating, but this definitely brings us to some Gnostic territory because as you and Jesus are talking about in the book, the idea of what was Jesus going to do? He's got this incredible information, but guess what? Oh no, I'm Jewish and I have the God of the Old Testament and his shenanigans behind me and all the bad things. So now I have to go tell the world that the Father is this good guy. So what is Jesus going to do? So maybe you could explain to the audience the amazing innovation of Jesus and his concept of the Father, which I really loved. Okay, so like this is the crux of the whole thing. So what's motivating Jesus? So we have, you know, the basic Christian concept is the nature of salvation, that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, he's the son of God, and he performs the one basic act, which is to sacrifice himself as the suffering servant on the cross and die, and then fulfill this mission that he's on. So I, I, that, that was, that was the real thorny thing. And I, uh, to write this story, I had to put all of that aside and I had to look at this from another point of view. And I have recently like had to go, okay, I had those blinders on. I was looking at it from this point of view and I didn't want to address this kind of material so now that I have done this and I have conducted all these interviews and I've really spoken a lot about this, what can we look at now that might be truthful? And so I'm re kind of evaluating some of my ideas, but getting back to the father, one of the things um, that you might, you know what? I don't have a copy of my book directly in front of me and where this passage was, but I uh, in, in the book, up. In the book, I think it's in chapter three, I talked about the father and we were uh, in this particular chapter. I was Jesus and I are walking the labyrinth and I actually have a labyrinth. I I referenced that um, in the book because that's the labyrinth that I built here. And we were talking about the nature of the father and the nature of the father is the nature of kind of the enlightenment experience. It is this no space, no time. It is the divine having its own experiences and you're part of this, this experience. So, you're, you know, it's a little bit like the ocean and the, and the wave. And, um, we think, you know, if we think about this for a second, we imagine the wave is this one thing, this one entity, and that it is somehow separate from the ocean. And it has its own life. It has its own size. You know, it has its own motion. It has its own movement. It's, you know, it's wiggling around. It's moving around and it's moving across the face of the ocean. And at one point, the wave is just, you know, I kind of imagine the wave kind of like the ego is thinking about itself going, God, I'm so big, I'm so powerful, or, you know, oh, I'm just such a little thing, you know, and it's having this conversation amongst itself about what it is. And then one day it rides up to the uh, shoreline and it crashes over and it dies. And all the while it was thinking of itself as being very separate. And then once it dies, it realizes, oh, my God, I'm part of the ocean. And so that's how I started to see this enlightenment experience and that Jesus was exploring the Father from that perspective. So there is a, 
um, you know, it's the wave is rec- uh, the wave recognizes that the uh, that it comes from the ocean, and the ocean is the grand experience of everything. It's also referred to, you know, in at that time as the logo. So here we are. We have the rational mind. We have the emotional mind. We have um, the life giver, the one that has that provides everything for all of us to have these types of experiences. And I believe that Jesus was looking at. Uh, the father in that perspective. So he's moving outside of the norms of Yahweh and Adonai and Elohim to embrace a bigger idea, I think, than not the creator God, but something that was actually uh, before that as kind of a, a nothing, nothingness or emptiness, uh, the great mystery, etc., that kind of thing. And that the father, as I was doing my research um, I try to recognize that the father had to come somewhere. I, you know, not that Jesus can't invent this, but you know, he had the mind to be able to do it. But I think that he borrowed uh, the concept of the father, uh, and I found that Pythagoras used the father to reference the one that is behind everything, and um, that it was also. The father that everybody recognizes because everybody has a father, whether it's good or bad, I think he recognized that there was an intimacy with the father and that that intimacy was what was guiding and directing him to create a very intimate experience for everybody that was with him, which is why I think he was so authentic, is that he himself was having these direct relationships and direct insights and direct kind of connection with the divine that he referred to as the father. And of course, his ministry is also about the community and that the community is a type of uh, family in which people are brothers and sisters. We are at the end. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company in this uh, this journey. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure. And it's been a very fascinating perspective on the life of Jesus. So thank you, David. Good luck with the book. Uh Vance, thank you so much. I really appreciate your work. And uh, Miguel, you know, thank you for your work as well. This is all very important and it's all needed. I agree. More than ever, we need that message out. Yeah, well, you know what? There's a lot of ancient traditions and wisdom out there that we just have lost. And, you know, we need to bring it back and kind of resurrect it. You're 100% right. And that's what we try to do here at uh, Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, Vance and I. So, but David, uh, thank you for bringing so much to the table, for making uh, this podcast richer. And uh, the audience will be much richer after they listen to your words or your gnosis, as we like to say. And good luck with your book and everything else. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on your show. And there you have it, my beloved True Seekers. The first part of our interview with David Collis. The mystic side of Jesus is pretty cool, eh? It gets better in our second part. David goes further into the concept of the Father. As mentioned in the intro, he'll grant his views on whether or not there was a historical Jesus as well as the mythicist argument and counter-argument in general. David will share the important idea of understanding the volatile atmosphere in the times of Jesus, 
and certainly additional insights on the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of John. We discuss more on the mystical experience. And then David provides a different take on the death of Jesus. And much more. This all will get you closer to finding your own personal Jesus and a deeper understanding of the story of Jesus as a whole. So become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for the full interview, as well as many other cool bonuses. Just go to thegodabovegod.com or message my ass. Welcome to the Age of Hermes, these Gnostic times, and a Philip K. Dick world. Everything has changed forever, and a spiritual solution away from the norm is your best route out of the Black Iron Prison. So continue helping me grow this Red Pill Cafeteria. We need Gnosis more than ever, and we've only just begun reaching those who need to wake up. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom, or guess, and their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace, or even meat space. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true mercurial self. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.